Hello and welcome to Stories of the Second World War. Today I'm joined by Saul David, a military historian and broadcaster. Saul has written a vast array of books on numerous subjects of military history, including the Indian Mutiny, which was shortlisted for the Duke of Westminster's Medal for Military Literature. Military Blunders, Zulu, The Heroism and Tragedy of the Zulu War of 1879, a Waterstones Military History Book of the Year, and most recently, a book titled The Force, the Legendary Special Ops Unit in World War II's Mission Impossible, and that is our topic of discussion today. Saul, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Noah. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Now, I understand that your new book, The Force, tells the story of a humble group of U.S. and Canadian soldiers tasked with capturing a critically important Nazi stronghold. Before we get into the details of their mission, would you tell us a little about who these men were? Yes, absolutely. The original idea, bizarrely enough, not least given my own nationality, was British. It was a plan to train men and use them behind the lines, potentially for strategic targets against things like oil fields and hydroelectric dams. And because they were planning to do it in snowy regions, they wanted the men to be able to survive in winter climates, to be able to ski. Uh, they were going to train them as parachutists as well. And also, ideally, they would be able to operate with snow plows, which were these kind of new motorized wagons that they were preparing to uh, build uh, and equip this force with. In effect, drop them behind the lines. What, what actually happens is that the British realize quite quickly that they don't have the resources to put this group together. And to be truthful, they don't have the locality where they could train properly in snow all year round. So they asked the Americans, and this is the early part of 1942, the Americans have only just come into the war, if they will take over the recruitment, training, and deployment of this force. And because the Americans have just got the British say-so for the new strategy against Germany, there would be a landing in, in Europe, preferably in France, probably late uh, sometime in 1943, maybe even as early as 1942 to help the Russians. This was a bit of a quid pro quo um, creating this force. And so the Americans take it on. And the first thing they think, of course, when they realize that we need these type of hardy soldiers is we've got to find people with the requisite skills. So the first thing they do is they scour all the, uh, the various military units across the United States in training at that time, because they wanted men who already have basic military training, but preferably people who came from that sort of mountaineering background, backwoodsmen, people who, were, who had been trappers and mountaineers earlier on in life, and people used to living in harsh climates, frankly. And so they came from all across North America, not just, not just the United States, but also Canada as well. And I think Canada, of course, the, the climate up there was ideal for the training of these types of people. But I also think it was a sop a little bit to the British so that there was some kind of British, in inverted commas, involvement in the force. And that leads nicely to my next question, which is what made this group of North American soldiers elite and how were they set apart from other elite units during the war? Was it simply their uh, background living in harsh winter climates? What made them elite is really a bit of both. First of all, they, they were naturally tough. They came from these sort of tough backgrounds. Not all of them, I have to say. I mean, some of them came you know, they came literally from across the United States. There was probably a preponderance of servicemen from the northern U.S. states and also from the provinces of Canada. But there were plenty for also from southern states as well. So it wasn't just people with experience of harsh climates. 
They were looking for the right type of people. They were asking them questions about what they wanted to do in the war, whether they were prepared to volunteer for this really pretty brutal training. And that's the second point. It, it was the level of training that they were expected to undergo. Um, as soon as you came a little bit below the excellent standards they were hoping to achieve, you were immediately returned to your original unit. It was absolutely ruthless. And to give you a sense of the, uh, the difficulty of the training, at this stage of the war, the early, early stage of training of paratroopers in the U.S. Army, it usually took six weeks to go through a paratrooping course. Some of the force men did it in under a week. Uh, they simply didn't have the time to go through the finer details of parachuting. So they had to complete two parachute jumps in a very short space of time. You add on top of that the, the cold weather training, the extreme physical fitness they had to reach, familiarity with all kinds of weapons, including enemy weapons, that is uh, German weapons they were considering at this point, but also Japanese later on. They trained in unarmed combat. I mean, they became ferociously fit and ferociously adept at all kinds of uh, warfare. They were very aggressive. They were trained to uh, react incredibly quickly to an adverse situation, uh, not to take a backward step and to close in fast. They were given the latest uh, small unit tactics, but they were also trained to think as a strategic unit as well. I have to confess now, having looked at a lot of units uh, created during the Second World War, I think this was the best trained and arguably the finest fighting force of the war in any army. Well, that's fascinating. Now, what would you consider this this unit to be? Sort of, was it an all-purpose elite unit? Was it more of a reconnaissance unit, a unit that was um, very much in line with, you know, paratrooping activities? Well, originally created to operate behind the lines, which is why they trained them as parachutists, because they felt that to get them into places like Norway, they would almost certainly have to drop them by air with their vehicles. Actually, towards the end of 1942, it became clear that the Allies could not devote the amount of aeroplanes, particularly heavy aeroplanes, that is bombers, to transporting this force, which at its height was probably about, at about 1,500, 1,600 uh, combat soldiers strong. So it's a decent size force in its entirety. And there was a feeling among the Allies that they couldn't devote that amount of their strategic air force for this particular mission. And therefore, the force was retasked. It went from being a behind-the-lines unit that was expected to operate on its own and probably be resupplied from the air to actually being more of an assault force, more of a reconnaissance and assault force that could operate behind the lines, but could also effectively operate as commandos as well. Now, setting the stage before we get into their uh, combat mission in Italy, what was the state of the Italian theater in 1943? What did the Allies have to do to break through German and Italian defenses? Well, the Allies had landed at Salerno in September of 1943 with the assumption that they would drive northwards towards Rome, but they quickly found a lot of opposition in the mountains. The Germans were very formidable fighters all the way through the war, but when they were in uh, strong defensive positions with the advantage of heights, they became even more formidable. And they set up a series of defensive lines uh, that really proved incredibly tough to break through for most of the Allied forces. And one of those defensive lines was known as the Winter Line. And the Winter Line was really set up on a chain of high points. And the key to getting through that Winter Line was along a strip, a roadway effectively, called the Mignano uh, Highway. And it was known as the Mignano Gap. And what the Allies realized is that the only way you're going to get through the gap, you can't just drive through the gap with, with tanks and armor, even though they had a lot of it, because, of course, the Germans on the high ground could just bring down artillery fire and destroy any 
mobile units trying to move through. So you have to take the mountains themselves. And the way to do that is to take them one by one. But in particular, if you're going to get through the Mignano Gap in the winter line, you need to take the shoulders of the gap. And on one of those shoulders is this formidable uh, mountain known as Monte La Defensa. Um, you know, the clues in the name, Noah, Defensa, it, it had been since ancient times, since Roman times, a position of, of natural defense with cliff tops that rise almost sheer from the valley floor. And it was a question of capturing that mountain that really um, was tormenting the Allied commanders, and in particular, General Mark Clark. And in the beginning of 90, uh, November 1943, just about the time that the force first arrived in the Italian theater, a series of attacks were put in against that particular feature and also the hillsides around it, and they were all beaten off with heavy loss, in particular the attack on Monte La Defensa, which was, which was attacked by a whole regiment of troops. That's, that's uh, a couple of thousand troops, and they're beaten off with very, very bad losses, and a number of bodies left strewn along the hillside at least 500 casualties were taken in that attack. And so the Allied commanders realized it's, it's going to take quite an operation to be able to capture this mountain. But until we do, we are not going to move another foot forward. And my guess is that is where the force comes in. Now, what was the critically important mission of these men that they would embark upon? And why was it of great significance to both the Axis and the Allied powers? Well, the force is, uh, is, takes part in probably the key uh, battle of what is known as Operation Raincoat. Operation Raincoat is, is an attempt to capture a, a series of uh, formations along the flank of the Mignano Gap. And the toughest of those assignments is, is capturing Monte La Defensa. And that assignment is therefore given to the force. Now, what's interesting about the force when it arrives in Italy is that although it's got a reputation of being highly trained, a special unit, uh, capable of climbing mountains, parachuting, you know, doing pretty much anything a military commander could ask it to do, it hasn't been tested in battle. This is really the key thing about the story. It hasn't been tested in battle despite its training, and no one quite knows how its men are going to react to their first taste of combat. Uh, some of the US troops, some of the Allied troops already in Italy at that time, you know, are thinking, who are these guys who think they can just turn up and do the impossible, do what we've tried to do? Uh, and they think they can pull it off. But the force were pretty confident, as you can imagine, after all the training they'd been through. But before they decide to attack the mountain, um, they had a good look at it. They, they went on a reconnaissance. In fact, two men went on a reconnaissance. One of them was um, of Native American extraction. So he was very good at, at you know looking at the lie of the land. He was a natural tracker, a trapper. Uh, and he was the man who, having looked at the mountain and went behind the lines, that is, uh, beyond the furthest point of the American lines and it, behind the German lines, to have a very good look at a possible route up the mountain that the Germans wouldn't expect. This is really the key to the story of understanding why the force uh, was able to do what it, what it did, because the traditional attack or the previous attack up the mountain had been up effectively up the only route it looked like you could go up the mountain, which, which is up the ramp to the east. Actually, there were sheer cliffs to the north of the mountain, which was behind the German lines. And the Germans quite understandably assumed that no Allied soldier is going to be able to climb these mountains. And so having looked at the mountain, the two scouts, um, in particular the Native American, um, decide that's the way they need to go up. They need to climb half the mountain on the first night of the operation and then continue the climb under darkness on the second night. So you can see it's an incredibly difficult task because they have to carry it out under extreme physical conditions. It's now winter. 
Um, the actual operation takes place at the beginning of December. It's, it's in rain and snow, very slippy, difficult conditions. And the last part of it is up a sheer cliff. So it's a, it's a hell of an ask, but the enforcement think they can pull it off. And uh, very simply put, how does that pan out for them? What are sort of the first initial uh, moments of combat that they encounter during this mission? Well, it's a two-stage operation. They march into the mountain under darkness on the first day. That is the night of the 1st and 2nd of December, 1943. And they actually launch the attack the following night, having lain up during the day. They leave at a, just after dark at about five o'clock in the afternoon, and they begin the climb up probably the remaining two-thirds, certainly the remaining half of the mountain. And of course, it's getting steeper all the time. It's in darkness. Bits of the route that they are taking have been previously roped so that you know you can gives you a difficulty of the terrain and you also have to bear in mind that each man is carrying about a hundred pounds of equipment he's carrying his personal weapons he's carrying extra water he's carrying extra ammunition i mean they are heavenly burdened with these various things that they have to carry and the re- the only reason they're able to do it quite apart from their training uh, quite apart from their training in mountaineering is that they are physically extremely fit uh, and they need to be frankly and so having climbed all through the evening um, in very, very fierce or very, uh, you know, adverse weather conditions, it's raining, it's snowing, it's slippery, as I say, there's also a bombardment going on of the mountain. That's partly to cover their advance, but it's also to keep the German heads down and to hopefully inflict a few casualties on the German defenders at the top who are well dug in in uh, bunkers and stone sangers, that's uh, effectively pillboxes with machine guns lined up all along the front of the mountain. But of course, the advantage the force have got is that they're coming in the back door. The question is, are they going to be spotted before they get to the top? Because if they are, it's going to be a bloodbath. The Germans have just, all they need to do is pour fire down on a, you know, a pretty unprotected group of forcemen who are climbing the mountain. But if they can get to the top and deploy, they will have the whip hand. And that's exactly what happens. And so at about 4.30 in the morning of the 3rd of December, 1943, they finally reached the summit. The actual uh, attack itself is only, I I mentioned the force was 1,600 strong. Actually, the unit assigned to carry out the attack is only about 280 strong. It's it's the uh, 1st Battalion of the 2nd Regiment. And the company who are leading the assault and in reality do almost all of the fighting, that's 90% of the fighting, is just 90 strong. In fact, 89 to be precise. And leading that is a single platoon of about 30 men. So you can see when it comes down to it, they can, not least because they have to go up, you know, one at a time, they only deploy a relatively small uh, group of men. And the question is, when the battle starts, uh, they have got to react swiftly, aggressively, and they've got to overcome resistance as quickly as possible. Because the more time the Germans have to uh, get set, as it were, once the surprise is is over, uh, the less likely the enforcement are to actually be able to capture the mountain. So uh, the key bit of the story happens as they're advancing up a goat track. So they've now got to the top of the climb. There's a scree track, maybe of a couple of hundred meters long before they get to the main German defensive position in this bowl uh, on, right on the top of the mountain. And it's as they're advancing up that last 200 meters that they finally bump a sentry. Uh, they're forced to kill him with a, with a, a, a shot. You know, someone uh, shoots him. And of course, the game is now given away. And it's, it's very interesting how quickly the Germans deploy from this complete surprise. They, they are able to turn their machine guns around and lay down quite a body of fire on the forcemen coming in. 
This is the point at which German defensive positions like this normally have the upper hand. They are trained to lay down a lot of fire, use their mortars, and effectively stop any attack in its tracks. What they don't reckon on is how close the forcemen already are. That means they can't deploy their mortars and the aggressiveness of these incredibly well-trained troops. So although the forcemen take a lot of casualties, they keep on attacking. They lay down a base of fire. They maneuver around whichever strong points the Germans have set up. And one by one, they nullify them. And within two hours, the mountain is captured. Well, World War II is filled with so many extraordinary stories, like the one you and I have been discussing today on the podcast. I'm curious, Saul, how did you first discover the story of the force and what motivated you to tell it? It's quite a serendipitous story, actually. I was, um, I was thinking of a follow-up to my previous book, which was Operation Thunderbolt, the story of the Special Forces uh, operation to rescue hostages at Entebbe in 1976. But that was a very different story. That was a terrorist operation. But I got very intrigued by the training that the Israeli Special Forces went through. And so I was deliberately looking for a Special Forces story from the Second World War. But I assume that most of the Allied Special Forces stories were well known. Um, a little bit of digging allowed me to discover a little bit of the background of the force, the first special service force. And what is odd for me as a military historian is that I'd never heard of them. And I thought, why not? Well, there are a couple of reasons possibly why some people, even people like me, might not have heard of them, because they were disbanded towards the end of 1944. That was really a question of the Canadian side of the equation not being able to carry on devoting the resources, particularly replacements to the force. But because they were disbanded before the end of the war, I think their story slipped a little bit under the radar. And therefore, I was determined to dig out as much information as I could from the archives, from interviewing the descendants of forcemen, and also the few remaining forcemen themselves. And I was, I was very fortunate and honored to meet the last man who went up uh, Monte La Defensa and to be able to interview him in his home in Canada. Well, Saul, is there anything we should keep in mind whilst reading your book? As a military historian, are there elements or facts of the story of the force in World War II that we should keep in mind as we read your book? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things for me is to see the unbroken line between the force, although it was disbanded in 1944, you know, in, in some ways it's a mystery, really, that they put all the time and effort into creating this force and then disbanded it towards the end of 1944, chiefly because the Canadians couldn't supply their uh, recruits. And therefore, there was a feeling that, you know, the original uh, purpose was no longer needed. But what's interesting about uh, the formation, the training, is that it's very much replicated in today's modern special forces. And so what you see, really, in the story of the force is the birth of the use of special operations, something that we know today in both uh, the UK and the US militaries really uh, leads the way as far as uh, force projection is concerned. I mean, I was astonished to read recently that America has deployed its special forces in something like 80 countries around the world, and that was as recently as 2016. And even if it's slightly fewer countries now, it still shows you that this method of, of, of deploying with a sharp edge rather than the blunt face of military force is really the future of warfare. And it all began with the force in the Second World War. Fascinating. Well, Saul, thank you so much for joining me today. I encourage everyone listening to pick up a copy of your new book, The Force, the legendary special ops unit in World War II's Mission Impossible. And of course, you all listening will find a link to that in the description of this episode. Saul, David, thanks so much for joining me today. Cheers, Noah. 
Thank you all so much for listening today to Stories of the Second World War. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform and consider leaving a positive rating and review. You can also find the podcast at storiesofthesecondworldwar.com with more information about the show. Thanks so much for listening. Join us here again next week.